Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. There is no such thing as religious freedom, or at least just one understanding of what that means. That's the crux of the argument in Thinbar Curtis's The Production of American Religious Freedom. Americans are fixated on freedom and saturated in religion, but define the concepts in various ways. The production of religious freedom is only possible within this context of malleability, contestation, and disagreement. Curtis demonstrates this process through a number of related examples, including conflicting visions of Christianity, tensions between social dependence and independence, economic issues, questions of racial inclusion, and corporate rights. Through these cases, we see how people respond when freedom makes them uncomfortable. Inequality was at the center of American history, and the regular rearticulation of individual liberation from social constraints begins to plot the historical boundaries of religious freedom. In our conversation, we discussed... Minister Charles Grandison Finney, author Louisa May Alcott, politician William Jennings Bryan, filmmaker D.W. Griffith, Catholic governor of New York Al Smith, Malcolm X, arguments for intelligent design, and the exercise of religious liberty in the case of Hobby Lobby. I'm one of your co-hosts, Christian Peterson, and thanks again for listening to New Books in Religion. Now, here's my conversation with Finbar Curtis about the production of American Religious Freedom, published with NYU Press in 2016. Welcome, Finbar. Thanks for joining us on New Books in Religion. How are you? I'm good. Thanks for having me. Yeah, now this this book, The Production of American Religious Freedom, uh, was really an excellent read. I, I really thoroughly enjoyed it. Um, I think I'm going to use some sections of it for some courses down the road. Yeah, and I, I look forward to, to kind of hearing your thoughts about it. But we always start with a little bit about how our authors came to the study of religion. So um, could you let us know a little bit about perhaps moments or mentors uh, that shaped how you study religion, the, the approaches you take, and how you got into the field? A lot of times when people are asked that question, they often go to some autobiographical explanation that is something in their life that they're still working through. And especially in the case of American religions, a lot of times it's an evangelical prehistory of some kind that is they're working through some evangelical deconversion and trying to make sense of their past self. Well, I don't really have that. I don't really have a personal religious experience that I would try to work through. The closest thing I could come up with is that I lived in Asia for a number of years when I was a kid. That is from when I was six to when I was 12. And there I became really interested in problems of difference and contact between distinct cultural phenomena. So like the kind of thing that would happen, I remember there was one time when I was about 10 and I was in some temple and there was a statue there and there were instructions and I was given a couple stones and told to say a prayer. And if I, the prayer was acceptable, that once I tossed these stones, they would land in a certain way and I would know that that prayer was legit. And so I kind of wasn't sure what to do. I just picked up the stones and tossed them. And they landed in a way that was like, nope, that, that prayer didn't work. So 
they gave me the stones back and I thought, all right, well, I should do something. So I said a silent Hail Mary to myself, figuring, well, that that's what I knew. And then I tossed the stones and that was acceptable. That worked. And so I thought, well, that's interesting. What What is it that makes a Hail Mary acceptable to a bodhisattva? And that's the kind of thing that would come up. It's not so much that that one story was like where it all got started, but that was the, the sort of thing that would happen in my childhood. And so later in high school, I remember reading Joseph Campbell and kind of embarrassed to say that now, but the, but what was interesting about it was, well, I didn't really buy the monomyth theory. I, I thought that was a little kind of far-fetched, even at the time. I was intrigued by the subject matter and the ambition and sort of audacity of the project to bring all of these distinct things together. And maybe in a way it's a sort of colonial project, but, um, but I was interested in religion in that way. And so when I got into college, I started taking a lot of courses in religion. I didn't really have a clear program mapped out, but by the end of the sophomore year, that was where I'd taken the most courses. And so I became a religion major. And then as I started to learn about theories of religion more, I sort of found what I thought were more responsible methods of comparison, learning about people like Jonathan Z. Smith or Bruce Lincoln and thinking, okay, here's how you could bring disparate things together and compare them in a way that wasn't sort of tied to making everything the same. Um, and so as I got more into social theories of religion, I that informed an undergraduate thesis on scientific creationism, in which I tried to kind of frame this um, as a moment in discourse analysis, or what I thought was that at the time. And that I wrote under the direction of Jillian Lint and Randall Balmer. And from there, I went on to get a master's at Vanderbilt, where I combined the study of US religion, or really kind of church history with um, Jack Fitzmeyer and Lewis Baldwin, as well as Dale Johnson, who kind of filled out other parts of church history, um, and also took a lot of courses with Jay Geller, who's been a, a longtime interlocutor about critical theory issues. And and there, I think this background of interest that is uh, my interest in American religions is a little bit different from a lot of Americanists and that I didn't start as a historian who then sort of bumped into different theories and tried to figure out whether they were useful. I very much started out as somebody whose interests were in theory and picked American because I needed a field, you know, I needed something to study. Um, and so that, that's sort of means that when I'm, I think my disciplinary identity means that I'm a, a theorist of religion who does historical work rather than a historian who's informed by theory. And so when I went from Vanderbilt to Santa Barbara, to University of California, Santa Barbara, I met a lot of other peers who kind of thought the same way. Um, and so a lot of us were reading Walter Benjamin and Theodore Adorno and trying to figure out how we could get those questions into the study of American religion. And so this informed then my work on the study of populism in America in which I drew heavily from social theories of people like Ernesto Laclau and others. Um, and while I had Kathy Albanese as my main advisor for American religions material, I also had Roger Friedland and Wade Clark Roof on the committee as sociologists and Giles Gunn as a literary critic and pragmatic theorist. 
And I was really shooting for interdisciplinary ambitions. Um, and so I ended up writing a dissertation that was part history, part social science, part textual criticism, and very confusing all the way down. Um, in a way, I think that's true of other people at UCSB. That is, you know, people who I overlapped with at the time, someone like John Modern or Kerry Mitchell. And all of us were studying with Kathy um, with on the American religions part, but then also trying to kind of bring in other methods and theories. And I think there are eccentricness might reflect, well, I don't know if that's quite the right word, but that sort of reflects Kathy's pedagogical philosophy in that I don't think she was trying to create little versions of herself. What she was trying to do is she was trying to give us some independent scholarly trajectory. You were supposed to come up with something novel and her job was to be your toughest critic. And so I think that's one reason why a lot of very inventive work came out of that program. And it certainly shaped, I think, an interdisciplinary ideal that has remained as a consistent feature of my work, although maybe sort of an eccentric figure within American religious history. Other people that are listening to this perhaps are also um, working on a book that was extending from their dissertation. Since there, there was this kind of transformative process for you, can you talk a little bit about after you finished the dissertation and then you started to think about this as a book project, what kind of things did you want to do with the book? Um, perhaps uh, how did you want to make an intervention? There, there has been a lot of scholarship on religious freedom lately. Uh, what were you kind of hoping to do with the book as you transformed it? Well, you know, to be honest, my path is probably not the standard one. And in a lot of ways, this book is very much the product of contingent labor. That is what it was is I got my dissertation in about in December of 2007, or I got that done, got the PhD in December, 2007. Um, and then I was bouncing around from one year jobs or one to two year jobs um, around the country looking for that elusive tenure track job. And so at first I was trying to take that dissertation that, um, and I wanted to write a monograph on populism. And that was really the structure of what the dissertation is. So I was looking at William Jennings Bryan and Al Smith as representative figures in American populism. And in particular, what issues were at stake in terms of like a white Christian nation and its ties to populist rhetoric. Um, and so that was the dissertation. And so I was trying to put a book together about that. But in the meantime, I'm kind of have these kind of very practical realities of contingent labor and dealing with the job market. And so I was sort of trying to publish things. And so I was kind of distracted, just kind of publishing particular articles. I was working on this special issue that came out in religion. So I had all these side projects going on. Um, and along the way, I wrote another intelligent design article. So these were sort of, I was just sort of moving through this, this process. And to actually take that dissertation and make it a book, was even though it seems like that would be less time consuming, would have been more time consuming. I really would have needed to go back and rewrite whole chunks of stuff. So what I was thinking about, this was where the book idea came into being, was I was in this place where I was kind of spinning my wheels trying to imagine a book on American populism. And it was just kind of dealing with the practical realities of the job market. I'd gone like four years without a job interview. And so I was like, just kind of giving up on getting a job in academia. And so when I, I had a lot of stuff I wanted to say, and so I thought, well, I'd like to write a book. Um, 
and then move on and do something else. Um, but so the, so what I came up with was I started to think, Hey, I've got this chapter on, or this essay I wrote on Charles Grandis and Finney in graduate school that I had turned into a conference paper. I have this Louisa May Alcott paper. I had done something on Malcolm X in grad school. Um, I had that intelligent design piece. And a lot of them could be tied together around the subject of freedom. Um, And so when I started to imagine this, I thought, oh, instead of trying to take the dissertation and make it into a book, I'm just going to ditch that. Um, take one Al Smith chapter, one Brian chapter, and then bring in these other questions about religious freedom. And so what that means then is that the actual structure of the book is pretty arbitrary and contingent. Um, So a lot of the reviewers, for example, have wondered, why did you choose these eight particular cases? And in each case, it was, I had something. I wrote a paper in grad school, and I thought it could smush it together into a book um, and then I would ride off into the sunset and do something else. Um, so, so, in, so part of what makes this book a little weird is it's not the normal dissert, you know, it's not the normal dissertation to first book process because it was very much imagined as a last book. Like this is the last thing I'm going to write, um, because academia is not working out. And then I just happened to get this Georgia Southern job, um, which was a surprise. And so, and that was great. And then I was sort of back in. Um, which meant then that I spent the first couple of years here sort of finishing the book um, and in some ways making some moves that I might not have originally made. Um, but yeah, so it's, it's not really a model. Like I can't, I can't really give a lot of advice uh, to people about oh, here, here's the proper way to take a dissertation, make it into a book. Because for me, it was this winding sort of eight years on the job market, trying to cobble something together and call it a book. Um, and that's kind of how it has its, weird structure that it does. Mm. Well, un- unfortunately, that might be good advice for lots of folks with the job market the way well, it yeah, is. And, uh, <laughs> but uh, yeah, that's, that's interesting because it does it does have a feel of a more of a, a second book or even a third book from authors uh, as opposed to this kind of more like deep kind of history of kind of American religious history and um, which there, there's great work doing that. But um, uh as someone who's not in American religious history, I found the, the book kind of more useful in the kind of ways I do the study of religion and as a teacher and these kind of things. So I'm glad your path was difficult, I guess is what I'm saying. Yeah, it's, you know, so um, something worked out it, and it did, you know, going back to the, the structure, it did in a way it kind of returned me to those sort of Jonathan Z. Smith roots. That is, rather than try to worry about writing a history of American religious freedom, I picked cases that I thought I had something interesting to say, you know? So for example, a lot of the reviewers have said these particular cases are, you know, there's a lot of interesting stuff in here. Um, uh, but, but why these cases, what brings the book together? And the answer is that's it. If, if, if you found interesting stuff in those chapters, that's why I picked those chapters, which isn't necessarily a model, I think for every book, certainly not for historians writing on, on American history. Um, but it kind of works for me. And it's one thing I liked about religious studies. That is, it, it has this interdisciplinary possibilities. So I'm kind of drawing from literary criticism, from philosophy, from history, uh, from the social sciences. And I'm kind of free, for lack of a better word, to kind of make use of all those resources, which makes it kind of a crazy book, you know, because it's it sort of bounces from 
you know, not only different topics, but very different methodologies. Now, uh, so at the root of this, this this concept of religious freedom, which you say is is not one that's really available, or uh, if it is, it's uh, unlimitedly uh, defined in a way. But central to this uh, is this kind of theme between religion and privacy, um, one of the key aspects of the, the many debates that you look at. Um, how does religion as a private enterprise operate in the American political economy related to these debates? Well, I think that everything is produced in socially specific conditions. So, you know, part of the central thesis is um, there is no such thing as religious freedom, which has gotten a lot of reaction. And there's a couple of different ways of looking at that central thesis um, before I get to the privacy point. I mean, the one way is to say the commonsensical understanding of religious freedom as the government leaving you alone or, or, you know, your freedom to do what you want without institutional constraints, that that commonsensical understanding of freedom has never existed, right? That, that, that there is no real way in which people are, are free in that sense. So that therefore the claims of the freedom caucus in Congress are somewhat incoherent. They, they point to some historical reality that has never existed. So that's one sort of reading. The other way, and they, and that makes sense. And the other way is to say that religious freedom is not a definable thing. It's not analytically coherent because it is no one thing. It's this, it's this language that people use for diverse political, social, economic, institutional purposes, right? And so rather than try to figure out what it is, that is try to locate religious freedom someplace in history, is to, instead of trying to figure that out, let's try to figure out the different ways in which it's produced and ask more specific questions about why certain actors are producing this rhetoric of religious freedom and what it's accomplishing for them or not accomplishing for them, how it might be limiting things. And what goes along with that is I think privacy is itself very much a kind of made up arbitrary construction um, and that the public private binary kind of comes into being in different ways at different times. And so to some extent, like in the later chapters where I'm talking about privacy, I'm interested in private institutions. Um, for example, the difference between, you know, what a the privatization of public schools uh, or one, you know, push to doing that and how something like intelligent design might be part of that agenda. I need my scientific freedom to believe whatever I want. Um, and the public school is in some sense an oppressive thing that's, that's encroaching on that private space. Or with Hobby Lobby, the way you have private institutions like corporations um, resisting public forms of regulation. But there is nothing essentially private about that or essentially public. It's, it's producing these lines of private and public that is advancing the interests of a corporate body, in this case, Hobby Lobby. And so I'm interested, I'm taking seriously the idea of Hobby Lobby as a private person and what that possibly means and how that might be in tension with, say, what happens at the beginning of the book, where I'm interested with Charles Grandison Finney and his rhetoric of revivals and the way in which he's using a public space to shame people, right? In, in other words, to bring sort of private, what are thought to be private sentiments into public view in a way that sort of then produces a Christian subject or produces some changed person. 
Um, so I'm interested in the sort of arbitrariness of public and private and the, how those things are constantly being produced and reproduced and contested and the political effects of those things. Now, um, maybe you could give us a little more detail here um, on the beginning of your book, this uh, Charles Grandison Finney. Um, I was not familiar with him. Some other listeners might not be. Um, how and why did he produce this social environment uh, or social norms that were formulated by his vision of Christianity? Um, and, you know, why, why do you see that fitting into this conversation of religious freedom? Well, part of it with, with Finney, I mean, Finney himself, I take to be, I'm using him as representative of something, right? I mean, it's not just interested in Charles Finney as his particular guy. Um, I'm interested in his um, revivalism. So in other words, just the kind of backstory about Charles Grandison Finney, he was somebody who was famous for leading um, large emotional um, religious services in which people would come to conviction and convert. And what went along with that was that he thought a lot about the psychology of conversion, right? So w what is it that allows people to convert? What, what, what sort of pressures do they respond to? And he thought very practically about tactics for doing this. Um, and a lot of these tactics had to do with these very kind of public displays of conviction of, of, you know, feeling anxious and, and upset. And that this brought him into tension with other people who thought that religious services should be restrained and proper and, and, you know, that people should be composed and that this was something unseemly and vulgar. And I'm not the first person to talk about Finney. There's a huge literature on Finney. And so what I'm interested then is that how scholars in the past have used a guy like Charles Grandison Finney, who was working in the early 1800s as a kind of example of a new era of democratization. That is, he was, uh, this is the kind of the, the era where uh, American religious freedom is taking off. And so you have religious entrepreneurs who are out making as many converts as possible because they no longer can rely on the sort of institutional supports given by establishments. And so Finney would be a really good example of a popularizer, somebody who makes a lot of converts, and that's seen as a kind of democratic thing. And so I'm interested in that connection between political institutions and religious institutions. And some people have sort of pushed back against the democratization thesis. I sort of think it makes sense, except that Finney as a popularizer, if we think about how popularity works, isn't necessarily popular because he's giving people what they want in the same way that democratic institutions don't necessarily give people what they want. Rather, what democratic institutions and popularizing or say market institutions do is they work to produce the right kinds of choices, but they have to work on free subjects. And so I'm interested in Finney in the way in which subjects are both thought to be free, that is, you are free to convert or to sin, um, but at the same time, you're put under a tremendous amount of social pressure. Um, and so the question then becomes, what is social pressure doing in the work of producing individual conversions? And how how is that talked about? How is that discussed? And what does that mean for thinking about the concept of a free person? I don't know if that makes sense. 
does. Um, now, you, you also in the kind of uh, earlier period, you look at Louisa May Alcott, um, author of Little Women. Um, how does she figure into this narrative? How does she reconcile tensions between dependence and independence? And what are some of the broader social and intellectual currents that are shaping her thinking? Yeah, well, in in a way, this book is four pairs, and Finney and Alcott are kind of a pair. And so, which in a way is a kind of Smithian move. There's a so Finney and Alcott are both dealing with the problem of divided selves, right? And and thinking about intimate personal selves um, in relationship to some kind of public. Um, whereas, I mean, to kind of skip ahead, I mean, the next two, the chapters three and four on Brian and and Griffith are both about populism. And one of them has sees a kind of great enthusiasm that is Brian sees with a lot of enthusiasm for building up state institutions. Um, whereas Griffith is sort of the logic of the Confederacy. That's the, the nation is lost. The state is lost and to preserve the nation from the state. Um, then I go on in the, the Smith and Malcolm X chapters. They're both on the question of religious minorities and the re- the relationship to American liberalism. Al Smith seizes American liberalism and he likes it. Malcolm X rejects American liberalism. Then the final two chapters on, um, on intelligent design and Hobby Lobby both deal with questions of private institutions and the law, right? And so going back to Alcott then, whereas Finney kind of, um, he sort of breaks people down. He makes you anxious. He, he makes you confess your sins in public. Alcott is about building people up, right? She's about finding um, relationships, sort of sentimental relationships of dependence with other people. So she be the so I in that chapter just really focus on one novel, the novel work, um, in which the central character goes off to find her independence, um, and when she uh, kind of fails to do this, she kind of has a breakdown and and, and struggles, but then finds. Um, salvation in a sense in her friendship with other women, but also in relationships with nature. And so a big part of what's influencing her is that she comes from this transcendentalist milieu in which they're thinking a lot about the harmony of natural and personal selves. Um, And so I kind of investigated a lot of that sort of transcendentalist. So for example, I mean, she knew Ralph Waldo Emerson and Henry David Thoreau, her, her father, Bronson Alcott was their buddy. Um, and so she was reading them and very influenced by their work. Um, so I'm interested in her kind of holism and what ends up being a kind of almost apocalyptic millennial vision um, in which you have this public sphere of women who are kind of working together and affirming each other. And I thought that was an interesting kind of counterpoint to what Finney was doing. Now, um, in the next uh, pair, so to speak, uh, you look at William Jennings Bryan and then D.W. Griffith. Uh, so what, what are you trying to figure here in relation to populism, uh, early 20th century, um, religious freedom? What are their two visions here? Yeah, well, so Brian is somebody who is often cited as a kind of um, lost romantic vision of somebody who was able to mobilize the agrarian masses to support an activist state. You know, so Brian was influential in calling for more state regulations of the railroads, state regulations of banks. Uh, he helped to create an income tax. 
um, which is impossible to imagine today. You can imagine the super majority of people supporting a constitutional amendment for an income tax. But this is this kind of moment where he was able to animate people in a way that could support progressive reform. Um, but I was also interested then in the way he appealed to collective subjects, which also sort of follows on Alcott a little bit. For William James Bryan, he was a uh, Presbyterian Protestant, but he was very much against the idea of a self-contained free individual. He thought that we are social creatures um, and that therefore we are most ourselves are most free when we're working with other people uh, by the sp- sweat of our brow to be productive. Um, and so, but what, what I was also interested in is that this rhetoric of sort of laboring in solidarity was also deeply racialized. Um, he was very much committed to the idea of white laboring bodies in the countryside producing an America that was under threat by the cities, the kind of polyglot cities, and especially the sort of alcohol in the cities. And so therefore, he spent a lot of his later life um, working, you know, crusading on behalf of prohibition. And he really took like, took personal credit for that. He's like, yeah, we got prohibition going. Um, and also sort of fighting against evolution. Um, and evolution he saw as a problem because it sort of gave, he was thinking in a lot of ways of social Darwinism. It, it sort of, um, it, it talked about what he called predatory capitalism. It, it sort of allowed for people to think that the strong should survive and the weak should perish. And he thought that that was problematic. But he also is really concerned, and actually his main concern was that evolution blurred the line between human being and animal. And that was deeply problematic because he he had an image of the Christian body created in the image of God. And so that, you know, the production of that white laboring body in solidarity with other white laboring bodies was a crucial part of his populist vision. And so I wanted to kind of draw that out, but I also wanted to draw that out because a lot of times people focus on a kind of romantic vision of Brian as either the early Brian, who is the crusader for social justice and people like him, or the later Brian, who then becomes um, interested in prohibition and anti-evolution and people don't like that Brian. But I'm sort of arguing it's the same guy um, because he's working with the same sense of uh, collective solidarity and the protection of a white Christian nation throughout his entire career. And that's the basis for his populist activism, which kind of throws a wrench in liberal models of how social progress should work. Um, But so that's Brian. And then in terms of um, D.W. Griffith, which is probably the most theoretically dense chapter in the book. And in a way, it really gets back to my earliest work on populism. So even though Griffith wasn't in the dissertation, the, the the kind of the meat of the Griffith chapter is a set of arguments about aesthetics um, and the aesthetics of populism. That is the kind of visceral emotional appeals that, that populism makes. Um, and that's kind of there in that fourth chapter. And so what I'm interested for Griffith is what I call that he's the kind of flip side of Brian's vision, although Brian very much liked Birth of a Nation. He thought it was a great film. Um, but it's it's rather than his version of the white Christian nation be one of a kind of enthusiastic for social reform, 
What he's looking at is the civil war in which there's this lost nation that needs to be restored. Um, and it's restored very much through the kind of construction of whiteness. And so um, it's also the kind of most brutal chapter in that it goes heavily into lynching. Um, and I'm interested in lynching as extra legal violence um, that becomes kind of aesthetically satisfying to people who feel that the state is been lost, right? So if you think about the what, what a lot of what um, D.A.B. Birth of a Nation is about, is about the Reconstruction era um, in which the as a in, in one of the title cards from the film, the helpless white minority of Southerners were sort of exploited by Northern carpetbaggers and African American rule. Um, and a lot of the play, uh, a lot of the well, it was a play that then became a, a movie. Um, celebrates is the restoration of white rule, and it sort of glorifies the origins of the Ku Klux Klan. Um, and I'm arguing that in a way, it has a similar sort of logic to Brian's populism except it's one that's now turned against the state. Um, and so it's one in which it really makes an argument for the Confederacy or the logic of the Confederacy, that is the protection of states' rights, um, the private household. And those sets of values are really what are central to the American story. And a part of what I do at the end of that chapter is I do kind of fast forward a little bit into, um, into the present moment and to say, I think this the logic of the Confederacy is very much still alive. And so I was writing that kind of those final passages in like summer 2015 and nothing in the past couple of years has persuaded me that that's not right. (laughs) This uh, chapter, just for listeners, I think uh, would also be really useful in like a a, a section or a course on religion and violence. Um, So uh, yeah, I'm thinking about using it in, in that regard. Uh, that's one of the nice things about these kind of episodic things that you do through the through the book too is it makes it useful for for people to pick and choose what they need. Yeah, it's pretty modular. I mean, you can it's very much a kind of book that, you know, you're just assigning chapter 3 and it it works. So because that and that was sort of how I was writing them. I mean, they they did come together as separate projects that I kind of brought them together in a book and each chapter kind of makes its own argument. Um so yeah, and you know, or if the book even was assigned as a course textbook, it's it's sort of easy to just say, well, we're just going to cut this chapter and this chapter and we'll read chapter one and week two or something like that. So, yeah, I, I hope that the book could be useful in that way. Um, now, so when you uh, move on to how religious minorities are kind of navigating this, this discourse of uh, religious freedom, you look at uh, Al Smith, who was a Catholic uh, governor of New York. Um, where he shifts the conversations of what freedom is. Um, wh- how did his understanding of secularity and religious identity uh, confront these these kind of Protestant assumptions and norms about these types of categories? Yeah, well, he's um, an interesting figure because he starts out in Tammany Hall and he's very much in his early days a pretty ordinary Tammany Hall guy. So he's in their early, um, early 20th century. He's coming up the ranks. He was big on the vaudeville stage. He had an eighth grade education. He was the New Yorker's New Yorker. Um, and he was in a world in which Tammany Hall, of course, had a great deal of local control in New York, but never really had much statewide power that was often controlled by upstate people. Um, but he rose to power um, and he becomes 
in an interesting takes an interesting path where he makes an alliance with a number of progressives as he comes up through the state uh, New York State Assembly, um, and he starts to meld his urban machine politics with progressivism, um, which you know really hadn't quite been done before, but sort of made sense in some ways, and that both of them sought to protect the common people. Um, and so as he kind of rose up and became the New York governor, um, he became kind of representative of this new movement, but he's also very much identified with the cities. Um, and so it was a challenge for him when he ran for president in 1928 to go out and connect with the countryside. So he found himself touring whole parts of America that he hadn't toured before. And he started to run into, well, not started to, but, you know, certainly in that, in that, when he, that campaign, it was most visible when he ran into anti-Catholicism of the kind sort of promoted by the Ku Klux Klan. And so, and they argued, as many argued in American history, that a Catholic couldn't be president because they would take orders from the Pope. Um, and, and also that Catholics lacked the habits of individual freedom that were important to democratic citizenship and were also part of a kind of Protestant Christian nation. And what's, what I try to read Smith as doing is pushing back against this and arguing that, no, not only am I not a threat to the separation of church and state, I'm consistent with the separation of church and state. And indeed, Protestants are really not following that principles because they're, they're their own principles because they're excluding people like me, that is Catholics from New York. Um, and so as interesting is that the people who supported Smith were a group of Catholics and Jews who pushed back against Protestant individualism by saying, no, we have a right to be Catholics. Um, and so rather than, than back down on the question of institutional loyalty, he doubled down and he say, no, everybody is loyal to something, right? Now, part of what I'm doing too is I'm, I'm drawing out a kind of implicit logic of Al Smith's argument for religious freedom that he himself might not recognize. So I get into a lot of discussion about institutional loyalty um, and that the sort of institutional loyalty to Tammany might mirror the institutional loyalty to the church. Um, but And that he thought about the world in terms of everybody has some kind of institutional loyalty. Now, he might not have ever explicitly formulated that in that way, um, but that that was how he took possession of religious freedom. So I was interested in the way he he made a kind of argument about being a Catholic and defending his Catholic roots and his Catholic neighborhood um, and defending his loyalties to Tammany Hall. And that indeed somebody who was disloyal would be a bad person. And so I was interested then in the way in this study of the problem of loyalty, which is something we don't think about, I think, enough in the study of religion, because a lot of times people's religious forms of identification have as much to do with loyalty to family and neighborhood as much as anything else. And so I wanted to kind of take that problem seriously, whatever that term means, for how we um, think about American secularism. And in a way, what the, the upshot of that is, is that it sort of complicates ideas about the Protestant secular. That is that the Protestant secular in America is one that has always celebrated individual freedom and has understood religion to be a matter of interior sincerity. 
and that that's not at all the way in which Al Smith, at least for his part, imagined his understanding what religious freedom is. Religious freedom for him was his freedom to be a Catholic, to be loyal to where he came from. Um, and he just thought that that's how society was organized. Um, and so it sort of complicates then different understandings of secularism. That is, he's using the language of secularism, um, the language of separation of church and state to advance a very collective communitarian agenda. Now, uh, the next chapter or the, the pair to this one is on Malcolm X. And here he also, uh, right, you look at how he pushes back on these American liberal ideals of freedom and equality um, in relation to these kind of Nation of Islam's ideas about racial solidarity and claims that racism in a similar way limit our free choices. Um, so – and of course there's lots to say about Malcolm X. Um, but you look at this kind of uh, – how he contests these discourses of, of freedom in many ways, um, especially in relation to his conversion. So – uh, how how are these events kind of interpreted in this this kind of larger conversation of religious freedom? Uh, what what did you see as being useful in kind of taking him as a e.g. Yeah, and so whereas Al Smith used this kind of liberal language of religious freedom um, and tried to repurpose it for his own purposes uh, along with his advisors, um, Malcolm X rejected it. Malcolm X was of course suspicious of the American liberal tradition, and was interested in exposing the hypocrisies in the way that people talk about freedom. And so in a way, what Malcolm X is doing with the book is he's basically just the biggest critic of American freedom. Um, and so he's, he's there as that voice um, to challenge the idea that uh, freedom has been a constitutive part of the American experience. And so what I'm interested in understanding in Malcolm X is his realism. That is, um, it, the, and what I mean by that is how he's trying to test claims about freedom or about racial equality next to the actual reality on the ground, right? What, what, what's, um, you, and by that, I mean the kind of sociological reality of, of inequality um, with all the problems that go into thinking about realism. But the, the, what I'm interested in, in his understanding is, sorry, the understanding that he's pushing back on the liberal understanding of why people are racist, that, that, that racism for the liberal understanding is a kind of aberrant sensibility. It's when people hate for no good reason. Um, and there, therefore, if we simply taught people not to hate racism goes away, racism disappears. If we just kind of convert an individual person to be a non-racist. And Malcolm X's career, in a lot of ways, was pushing back on that against that liberal narrative. I mean, there's lots of other things going on in Malcolm X, but part of it, when he starts with the kind of Nation of Islam story about white devils, is instead of starting with the idea that racism is something aberrant and weird and outside of the American tradition and a kind of exception, he says, no, this is the norm. This is the actual at the heart of the American story, that is, people are racist. Um, and they have a deep investment in that. Um, and you have to start there before you can really start to analyze sort of what anti-racism might be. And that sort of turns the table. And so, um, and, and so it, it forces then people to describe themselves as anti-racist rather than just sort of avoiding that sort of problem of interior hatred. 
And it makes the question then, certainly in terms of a later Malcolm X, sociological and political. And so he, he starts looking then increasingly to global revolutionary struggles to push back against American liberal models of freedom. And so I become really interested then in the last year of his life, as lots of people are, not so much as this conversion to American liberalism, which is one kind of it's sort of bad reading of Malcolm X, that he sort of repudiated his earlier critique of American racism and sort of celebrated an inclusive community. In some sense, of course, there was this, you know, Mecca story where there was an ideal of an inclusive community, but that was very much against the sort of realities produced by the legacies of colonialism. And so what's interesting there is how he goes outside of America to try to think about revolutionary resources from abroad. And so I, I argue that actually, and, and I'm not the only one arguing this, that really in the last year of his life, he actually becomes more political in a sense. Like there's one letter from Elijah Muhammad to uh, Malcolm X, where Elijah Muhammad tells Malcolm X, stop talking about politics so much, just just stick to religion. Um, and I'll, I'll deal with those political questions. And I think increasingly Malcolm X wanted to directly engage political questions um, in a way that uh, was sort of confining within the nation of Islam. Um, and that sort of made him move outside this very distinctly American movement in a way that is the nation of Islam. Um, well, while it's obviously, of course, really critical of America, it's still very much a product of, of, Ameri of at least a reaction against American institutions. And I was interested in Malcolm X as sort of moving globally. Um, if that makes sense. Yeah, it does. Um, so in the final section, you move away from kind of individuals um, and you look at both the kind of case of intelligent design um, and then the case of Hobby Lobby. Um, and here, part of what's going on is how, how do advocates uh, of ID and how do lobbyists for Hobby Lobby uh, employ the rhetoric of freedom to advance their own goals. Um, so what, uh, what, what's going on with the kind of discursive intersections of religion and secularity and, uh, you know, all, all sorts of things, property and personhood, uh, wh where do these kind of intersect in, in relation to, uh, contemporary debates about religious freedom? Yeah. Well, the first one was originally an essay in the Hedgehog Review um, that it's inside the intelligent design chapter, um, that I edited a little bit for this, for this book. But, um, and what I was interested in there were problems of institutional differentiation, um, meaning kind of the work on like going back to Jose Casanova and public religions in the modern world and thinking about, you know, his big four schemes, which is, you know, religion, politics, economy, and science. And that in the modern world, um, increasingly these things become differentiated from each other. That is, religion and politics become distinct things. And I'm also interested in the critique of that by Talal Assad and others who say, well, it's not just that um, religion and politics start to become separate. It's that religion and politics start to become produced as things at all, um, as distinct, discrete institutional spaces. And I sort of keep going with that. And I said, well, it's also the case that the economy, in some sense, as a discrete thing is produced. And science is it's as the idea of some discrete thing is produced. And really, the kind of proper way to understand all these things 
is that all of them are producing their own models of freedom in a way. That is, you have free markets in the case of economy and, and free inquiry in the case of science or um, rights in the case of, of politics or you know freedom of conscience in the case of religion. But all of these are products of forms of, of different forms of social uh, differentiation. They're not, they're not things that exist before these processes of differentiation go into existence. In other words, to take the case of intelligent design, instead of starting out with the idea that some ideas are essentially religious or some ideas are essentially scientific, if we imagined the idea that we have a bunch of truth claims, people are just making ordinary truth claims about things, and that some of them get sorted into scientific boxes and some of them get sorted into religious boxes. Now, I don't think that's completely arbitrary. There's reasons, you know, science starts to produce criteria for deciding which count as legitimate claims or which count as not legitimate claims. And a lot of that criteria depends upon having a kind of authority, right? So science then takes on certain forms of institutional authority that then become powerful. And they start to say, this is what real biology is and this is what real biology is. Now, what's menacing about the case of intelligent design or menacing, menacing to scientists um, is that it says, okay, we're going to play with what gets sorted into scientific boxes and we're going to get sorted into religious boxes. And this could be read a couple ways. One is we might try to make scientific claims in the way that scientific creationists would. Um, and we're going to say this, these claims that we have about how the world was created will stand up to scientific principles of testing and falsification and verification. That's sort of one move. But I read the intelligent designers as doing something a little bit different. Rather than try to, say, defend their views using scientific principles and reasons, what it, it does is it challenges the very idea of scientific authority itself, right? Um, and so what it allows you to do is it gives you a space to say, well, it's all up to interpretation because really nobody knows where the first cell came from. That could have been the process of evolution. It could have been the process of some intelligent agent. And it really is up to you to decide. So it becomes, what do you believe? And so what it does then is it, is it attacks a kind of scientific authority by saying all of the claims of science can be subject to a believer's conscience. In other words, it's up to you to decide as an individual whether global warming is real, right? Or whether intelligent design is real. These become now belief claims that are analogous to religious belief claims. Now, we think of religious belief claims as always working like that, right? That, oh yeah, those are matters in which a conscience decide to believe things. But in a way that wouldn't have made sense to say medieval church authorities, right? They didn't have the idea that each person gets to decide religious truth for him or herself. And a lot of what we call processes of secularization are ones in which individual consciences start taking authority away from public institutions. And I say, in, in some ways, what's happening or the attempt of the intelligent design is an attempt at secularizing science in that way. That is, taking what were publicly authoritative claims and making them subject to individual consciences. Now, that might seem really weird for science, 
Um, but for a lot of people, that would have seemed really weird for the things that we classify as religion. And really what the effect of that does is it starts to say scientific claims are actually now constructed as a private matter, right? You get to make your own decisions about what are science. And rather than being able to persuade other people in some imagined thing that we call a public sphere, really all we do is we hunker down with our own private convictions. Um, and so in that sense, it moves towards broader processes of privatization, what Patricia Williams calls the tyranny of the private. Um, and I think intelligent design is a kind of illustrative of those sort of those, the, that movement. And then so Hobby Lobby uh, works as an example of uh, kind of corporations exercising religious liberty. So where does this fit into the conversation? Yeah. So whereas, um, you know, the, the intelligent design chapter is looking at the institution of science in that one, I'm looking at the institution of the economy, right? Or, or what we take, we call the economy. Um, and I'm looking at how corporate persons are also making sort of private claims um, that seek to resist public scrutiny and, and, and public regulation. Um, so in that case, we have, I mean, it, it was interesting because re- originally the final chapter was going to be a chapter on the Tea Party. Um, that's what was in the original proposal. But Hobby Lobby happened when I was writing the book. So I got the book contract at basically the end of 2012, beginning of 2013. Um, and the Hobby Lobby decision is, is June of 2014. Um, but I had already started getting interested in the contraception mandate. And I was interested in the arguments the Catholic Church was making about the contraception mandate. In particular, the way they were going back to what I saw as very kind of libertarian arguments about the sanctity of property. And as they were saying, we should not have to pay for contraception because to pay for contraception would violate our consciences, even if we're not, even if people are still able to go out and get contraception. We don't care about that. Um, we just don't want to pay for it. And I thought, well, what sort of moral claim is that? Like, how, how is that an actual moral argument? Um, to say, we don't really care what other people are doing. We just want to protect our money from pollution and contagion. And so I came up with this idea that there's something going on. Is this what I called sort of monetary sanctification that is protecting your money, protecting your property from polluting sexual practices. And I thought it was interesting, the arguments that the Catholic church was making. And then of course, when Hobby Lobby stepped in and made those, some of those same arguments, Although, of course, not exactly the same. I mean, we're Catholic Church banned or, or wanted to ban all forms of contraception. Uh, Hobby Lobby just didn't want those, you know, four forms that they found that they thought were abortive patients. Um, but then, of course, it, it brought in all these other questions about how this for-profit corporation could make the demands of a of a corporate religious person. Um, and so I was like, all right, let's let's investigate that. I think that sort of um, follows on some of the previous chapters that the intelligent design chapters arguments about privatization. That is what Hobby Lobby is able to do is to take a public health issue. That is um, the contraception mandate that mandates by law that women are are able to, uh, that employers should cover women's contraception and to say, we should be able to opt out of that. We, We should be able to find some private space in which we should be able to protect our money from those practices. 
even if our employees can go out and get contraception through this separate fund. We're fine with that, just as long as we symbolically are not paying for it. And I thought this is really interesting because we start really expanding what religious exercise is here, right? Would Thomas Jefferson have imagined uh, that the religious of, you know, or James Madison or those people have imagined that in religious exercise is going to be people who want creative accounting techniques to uh, protect their moral convictions about contraception uh, from their employees who have different moral uh, positions about contraception. And what's also interesting, though, about that argument is it also gets to uh, the fluidity of what we're calling religious conscience to begin with. And what I mean by that is the argument that the church is making is a sort of argument from natural law. And it's similar to the argument that the Greens are making. The Greens are saying, we tolerate religious differences, right? So we're not, you know, we're fine if somebody is Jewish or Christian or atheist, that's fine. But in this case, when it comes to contraception or, or abortifacients, um, they're causing abortions, or that's what they sincerely believe, even though health professionals disagree with them. They're causing abortions. And that is morally wrong universally regardless of your religious belief or conviction. In other words, what they're actually making an argument for is a simply an ordinary moral argument that, that should count as moral facts. But because they decided to call it religious, this is now treated differently from other kinds of moral arguments. And for me, that's a pretty arbitrary choice to call it religious, right? In other words, there's all sorts of things, um, you know, civil matters that could have religious precedent. There are, uh, the Ten Commandments prohibits murder, right? But people don't necessarily think of murder, uh, their their convictions of murder, as a religious freedom issue. I mean, maybe Judge Roy Moore might think exactly that. Um, but there's all sorts of ordinary uh, moral and ethical arguments that that they're making that they've just sort of arbitrarily decided to say, this is actually my religion. And because they've arbitrarily decided to say, this has its origins in my religion, now this gets special protections from the court um, and is treated differently from other kinds of moral arguments. And what it does, practically speaking, is it strengthens corporations. And so it transfers power from public institutions or state institutions to private institutions like corporations. And what's important about that is that rather than liberate those organizations to run through the fields and be free, it, in, practically speaking, empowers them to regulate things, right? So corporations are highly regulated structures. Churches are highly regulated structures. Families are highly regulated structures. And so when we free these different private institutions, we're actually creating institutions that regulate individual human beings and individual human bodies. And so the irony of the rhetoric or logic of privacy is that it actually just empowers some social institutions, in particular what we're sort of arbitrarily identifying as private social institutions to have great deal of regulate regulatory power over individual bodies. Right. And that's kind of an irony of what religious freedom does. Well, it's a, it's a fabulous book. I hope uh, listeners will pick up a copy and perhaps uh, use it in some of their courses. Um, I'm sure if listeners are still here, they'd, they'd love to hear the type of things you're working on now, knowing the, uh, kind of breadth that you cover in, in a lot of your research. Yeah. So I had this, you know, the, this, the structure for the book, which was 
as it, you know, I mentioned at the beginning of the podcast sort of arbitrarily came together. I, I just had material on these different subjects and thought I could string them together into a book. Um, and while I don't, I'm not necessarily recommending that process for everyone, it sort of works for how my mind works. I'm sort of thinking about doing something similar, but for the problem of offense, that is people sort of have kind of working on a book tentatively titled Offending Religion. And so I'm interested in, in the politics of giving and taking offense and its roots in ideas of profanation and blasphemy. Um, and so I have a number of chapters. I'm still sort of debating what different chapters are going to look like, but I was thinking of having one early chapter on Quakers and refusal to take oaths and how that offended people and the, the stakes there. Um, and then kind of bouncing around, there's one um, one chapter possibly on H.L. Mencken, another one on Joan Rivers, um, and then really coming up to the present where I want to look at um, like cartoon controversies, like controversies about like stemming from the Charlie Hebdo, then the American replaying and those, char you know, like drawing uh, um, cartoons of the Prophet Muhammad. And then a final chapter on Donald Trump, which um, and that's kind of I've written a chunk of that one that's will be on what I'm interested in Donald Trump and his honesty. That is what people like about Donald Trump when he comes out and he says what he thinks, um, which in a lot of ways is about offending people, right? In other words, people have all of, you know, and this is just me living in the deep South where I, you know, I'm talking to Trump supporters all the time. And it's always one of the top reasons that they like him is that he opposes this thing called political correctness and he stands up for common sense. And what is common sense? Well, common sense are their kind of visceral intuitive sense that um, African-Americans in the South side of Chicago are dangerous, that Mexicans are going to take their jobs, um, that gay people are going to kidnap their children, that, um, you know, um, Muslims are going to blow something up. Um, and this is what they feel, but they can't say it because there's these elite politically correct liberals who are going to say you're a racist and a xenophobe and an Islamophobe and a sexist. Um, and Trump comes along and he liberates them. And he's like, no, you're right. You, you know, you can, you can say all these things. Um, and I'm interested in the way that's gained a lot of support and particularly a lot of support among white evangelicals who I think to me, we really underestimate how invested or, or, or the people who are continue to be shocked at white evangelical support for Trump um, continue to be uh, are, are how much evangelicals are really invested in an idea of a way of life connected to the white heteronormative family. And it's the protection of that way of life that's really central to the evangelical project. And that Trump is the perfect guy for that because he stands up to liberals. He's willing to fight them. He's willing to um, attack them in ways that nobody else has been willing to do. And so it makes a lot of sense. So uh, unlike a lot of the rest of America, I was really unsurprised at Trump's rise. And I thought this, this, I could see the intensity of his appeal and his support. And so I'm going back then to think about, all right, what are the roots of this discourse about giving and taking offense? And why is it that see, it's that people who give a lot of offense, who offend a lot of people are seen as sincere um, and are, are somehow um, truth-telling, even when they might be saying fictional things. Um, so, I mean, in other words, I guess Trump is the sort of, you know, it's hard to think outside of him right now. And so he's the one who is the kind of impetus for this larger book project. 
Yeah, it sounds great. Good luck. And uh, thanks for making the time to talk about this uh, wonderful book. All right. Thanks a lot. Thanks for having me. That was my conversation with Finbar Curtis about the production of American Religious Freedom, published with NYU Press in 2016. Thanks for listening to New Books in Religion.